Mark 3, starting in verse 22, it says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he cast out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Because, they said, he has an unclean spirit. So it was earlier in chapter 3, after increasingly opposing Jesus, that the Pharisees began plotting with the Herodians how they might destroy Jesus. The Pharisees were upset by what they understood as Jesus not obeying the law of Moses. Jesus does not oppose the law. In fact, he originated it along with the Father and the Spirit. He upheld the law in its entirety, going so far as to say that until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle would pass from the law until it was all fulfilled. Matthew 5.18 Paul, the apostle of grace, as they all were, but Paul is the least likely having previously been a Pharisee, he agreed that the law is holy, just, and good. We read in Romans 7.12 the jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Jesus refers here to the yod, the smallest letter. Later, rabbis told the story that when God changed Sarai's name to Sarah, the yod that was removed complained to God for generations until he reinserted it this time in Joshua's name. Interesting how they considered the value of the word. You know, he was Hosea became Yahashua and uh, English, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus. So Jesus, Jewish teachers used illustrations like this to make the point that the law was sacred and one could not regard any part of it as too small to be worth keeping. The tittle is one of those little strokes by which alone some of the Hebrew letters are distinguished from others like them. So just a little like an apostrophe mark. The meaning of Jesus' statement is that not so much as the smallest loss of authority or vitality shall ever come over the law. The expression, till all be fulfilled, is much the same in meaning as it shall be had in undiminished and enduring honor from its greatest to its least requirements. Then there were the Herodians. They opposed Jesus because Herod felt threatened by his popularity and was wanting to solidify his power as the king over Judea, although under Roman rule. He does not seem to have been as paranoid as his father, Herod the Great, who had members of his own family, a wife and two sons, executed because he believed that they threatened his throne. He was the king behind the slaughter of the male children in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. The Herods were from Idumea or Edom, and Edom had been captured and subjected by Israel. They were subjected to the Mosaic law, including the dietary laws. 
And thus it was said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son because he kept kosher. He wouldn't kill his pig to eat it, but he would execute his sons and his wife. This Herod opposing Jesus is one of Herod the Great's surviving sons, but he's no less interested in retaining power than was his father. Well, in our passage this morning, it's the scribes who come down from Jerusalem and speak out against Jesus. The scribes were foremost copyists. They transcribed the biblical text from scroll to scroll so that the text would be preserved as the scrolls themselves deteriorated. And they did superb work in this regard. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in Qumran in 1947, God confirmed the wonderful preservation of his word. There's a myth that as the text of scripture is copied over and over and changes are made, that the meaning of the text changes so dramatically that it can no longer be the same message. You can't trust it to be reliable, they say. Now, this is illustrated by something called a telephone game. Have you ever played the telephone game? I don't think it's played with cell phones anymore. And it's a party game as well where uh, you start with a message and somebody whispers it to their neighbor and they whisper it to their neighbor and so forth. And, you know, that's the telephone game. And then by you get you get to the end and the person says what the original message was and it's totally different, you know. And they say, well, that's what happened with the Bible. Uh, this is totally untrue when it comes to Scripture. It was not transmitted verbally only. It was written, as Jesus often said when he quoted Scripture, as it is written. And this writing was preserved, preserved with great accuracy. As a matter of fact, uh, verbal tradition was not on the same level in any way with Scripture. It was for some groups. But you recall Jesus saying, it has been said, or you have heard it said, but I say unto you. So he's correcting their misinterpretation of what is written. <laughs> this view of faulty transmission of the, text dot, of the text discounts the seriousness and care with which the scribes performed their task. There were specific rules strictly enforced when making a copy of a scroll of scripture. The Jewish and Masoretic uh, rules for copying the scripture were this. It must be written on the skins of clean animals. It must be prepared for synagogue use by a Jew only. This was the Jewish scribes. Of course, this was later carried on by many um, monks in the Christian tradition in the copying of manuscripts. It must be fastened together with strings taken from clean animals. Each skin must contain an exact number of columns, which must be equal throughout the entire manuscript. The length of each column must be between 48 and 60 lines. So your animal skin had to be large enough. The breadth of each column must consist of 30 letters. The whole copy must be first lined, and if three words were written without a line, it was considered worthless. The ink must be black only, prepared according to a special recipe that was used only for copying of Scripture. The original used to make the copy must be authentic and must not be deviating from the deviated from by the copyist, and the scribe must say each word aloud as he wrote it. So each, each time he recorded a word, he had to say it out loud. No word or letter could ever be written from memory. The scribe must always look first at the original 
before writing his copy. A space of a hair or thread must intervene between each consonant. And they were, of course, they were all consonants. They didn't write down any verbs. But I would have been fired as a scribe like after five minutes, you know, because these people, you know, and they're still around today. These people can perfectly reproduce their, you know, letters with their writing, whether, you know, and, you know, mine's different. Every time I sign my name, it's like I'm somebody else, you know. <laughs> A space of the breadth of nine consonants must come between each section. No word must ever touch another. The middle paragraph, word, and letter must correspond to those of the original document. A space of three lines must come between every book. And the fifth book of Moses, Deuteronomy, must end exactly with a line. Before copying, the scribe must wash his whole body. While copying, the scribe must only write the name of God with a pen newly dipped into the ink. Each time the scribe came across the Hebrew word for God, like Elohim, he had to wipe his pen clean. And when he came across the name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, he had to wash his whole body before he could write it. You read some scriptures, they'll have God's name in there like three times in one verse, you know. This guy's writing it, and then he's, you know, continues on, writes a few more words, and then he has to wash himself again. And they would use the mikvah, you know, for doing that. If a king addresses the scribe while writing that name, he must take no notice of him. <laughs> Ignore the king. If a sheet of parchment had one mistake on it, the sheet was condemned. If there were three mistakes found on any page, the whole manuscript was condemned. Each scroll had to be checked within 30 days of its writing or it was considered unholy. Every word and every letter was counted. If a letter or word was omitted, the manuscript was condemned. And if you apply these rules to the telephone game, you probably end up with the same message at the end. <laughs> the documents could be stored only in sacred places like synagogues. And uh, no document containing God's word could be destroyed. That is, if you had an authentic authenticated, authenticated um, scroll of the scriptures, then you weren't to destroy that. Um, they were stored or buried in a ganiza, Hebrew term meaning hiding place. And these were usually kept in a synagogue or sometimes in a Jewish cemetery. So they would bury these used scrolls that were uh, becoming too difficult to read. And sometimes they'd be buried with a rabbi. Sometimes they'd be buried, you know, somewhere else. So they were so careful in their copying that they counted every letter and then compared the total number of the document with that which they were copying from. If the numbers did not match, the copy was burned. As before it's authenticated, then it would be completely destroyed because they didn't want any false copies out there. They were meticulous in making sure that no words were left out that belong to the text, nor any words admitted improperly. And in the time of Jesus, these scribes were also called lawyers, and they not only copied, but also interpreted the text, and this is where they faltered. We've seen that they did not teach with authority, but they quoted various rabbis or traditions. But they did begin to place their own traditions above the teachings of Scripture, and this is the main point of conflict between them along with the Pharisees and Jesus. 
But God has given us an example of the accurate preservation of his word in the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery. Until 1948, the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament dated back to 895 A.D. In 1947, a shepherd boy discovered some scrolls inside a cave west of the Dead Sea. And it's interesting, they have recently discovered more scrolls in more caves. That's just, you know, within the last couple of months, maybe. So uh, the shepherd boy throws a rock into a cave and he hears this clatter, breaking of a jar. And he gets in there and there are these manuscripts. They're dated between 100 B.C. and 100 A.D. And so over the next decade, more scrolls were found in caves, and the discovery became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Every book of the Old Testament was represented in this discovery except Esther. Why was Esther not there? Yeah, it doesn't mention God directly. You don't know the word God, uh, the name of God's not there. But obviously, you know, the providence of God is all over that, that book. Numerous copies of each book were discovered. For example, there were 25 copies of the book of Deuteronomy in the discovery. Multiple copies of the book of Isaiah. And while there are other items found among the Dead Sea Scrolls not currently in the Old Testament, the Old Testament items that were found have very few discrepancies to the versions of the 10th century. This is, you know, a thousand years. The majority of the differences are differences in the spelling of words. Similar to English English and U.S. English. For example, they spell honor with a U. We spell honor without a U. And while not perfect, this is our best measuring stick to how accurate the Jewish scribes were throughout the centuries. The truth of Scripture is perfectly preserved as promised by God. He promised this in Psalms 12, verses 6 and 7. It says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. So God promises he's going to preserve his word. This has implications for uh, recent manuscripts that were discovered that uh, are different from what we've had for all this time. God promised he'd preserve it for this generation forever. And so God has kept his promise to preserve his words for every generation. The scribes, while meticulously copying the text of Scripture, departed from its observance by inserting their own traditions in the place of God's word. For example, we read in the Mishnah, a Jewish writing, uh, part of the Talmud, As follows, it is more punishable to act against the words of the scribes than against those of Scripture. If a man were to say there is no such thing as tephalin, which we know as phylacteries, basically, in order thereby to act contrary to the words of Scripture, he is not to be treated as a rebel. But if he should say there are five divisions in the prayer fillets, instead of four in those of the forehead as the rabbis taught, in order to add to the words of the scribes, he's guilty. So it doesn't matter if you mess up when you're dealing with scripture, but if you mess up dealing with the rules of the scribes or the Pharisees, the rabbis, then you're in trouble. It says, Assuredly, a more signal instance could scarcely be found of teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. 
and of even on their own showing, laying aside the commandments of God in order to hold to the tradition of men, as we'll see in Mark 7, verses 7 and 8. Well, the Teflon, the phylacteries, we know that those were being in, were in use in Jesus' day. And he talks about those who broaden their phylacteries to be made look more holy to other men. Uh, the phylacteries were, they would insert certain scriptures in these phylacteries. The one on your forehead would have four verses. And that's why it's saying if they say there should be, you know, if they put in five instead of four, then they're in trouble. And then you have the, on your, it says on your hand, they actually put them on their forearm and then wrap the straps around it. There are certain rules for wrapping those straps that you have to get right. There's like four four on the upper uh, lower arm and three further down toward your wrist. And then it's to hang over, you know. So you got to get all this stuff right if you want to be holy, you know. There are minute procedures for the manufacture and wearing of Teflon in modern Judaism. And if you, you look this up on the web, I mean, there are pages and pages of the right way to do it. And there are some disagreements. But they were problematic in Jesus' time. He condemned the broadening of phylacteries in order to be seen by men as righteous. But the idea did have an origin in Scripture. I think they misinterpreted the passage. But in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9, uh, Moses speaking says, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach, well, he's quoting God, you shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So they were to have the word of God in the forefront before them at all times. You know, you find the mezuzah today where the little uh, box on the doorpost of a Jewish house, which will have scripture inserted in it. Um, I don't think God's idea was for them to insert the scripture and then not, you know, keep thinking about what the scripture says, not just to have it there for, it's not a superstition or a ritual that God is recommending here. Um, actually, it says you shall bind them as frontlets between your eyes. So it should be <laughs> right here, you know. And I saw, you know, as I was looking at some of this Teflon stuff, they say, well, you shouldn't wear it down here by your eyes. You have to wear it up here because it's supposed to, you know, affect your mind, having these four scriptures written in there. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees did interpret this literally, and they developed the phylacteries to obey this command. It doesn't. You know, mentioned phylacteries per se. But this is not given a superstition or ritual. The word of God is to be before our eyes that we might be seeing God's commands as we go about our lives and bound on our hands that we, what we do will be in agreement with his words. And we are to teach them to our children. It's, it's not those four scriptures or however many they have in the you know, Teflon on their arm. It's the entirety of God's scripture and God's command. This gives us some idea of who the scribes were as they come to Jesus. They come with their argument already developed in order to oppose and discredit Jesus. This is a strategy or a tactic, not a genuine concern. And they say in Mark 3.22, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he cast out demons. Now, Beelzebub is uh, the lord of the flies, 
sometimes quoted as the Lord of the house. He's also known as the dung god. Some uh, will refer to him as Beelzebul. <laughs> and, and that was a Jewish derogatory uh, changing of the name to be, you know, the god of dung. But Beelzebub is an ancient title for the devil, and he was a god of the Ekronites, one of the territories of the Philistines. The short form is Baal, Baal, and you're familiar with that name. He's the prince of devils or demons. Jesus was accused of being demonized. That's what they're saying, that he's demon-possessed. He was accused of this on several occasions. In this case, he was said to cast out demons by the prince or ruler of demons. On another occasion, he was said to have a demon because he pointed out that the Jewish authorities were trying to kill him. He said, oh, you, you got a demon, man. And that's in John 7. In John 7 case, it may have been similar to telling somebody they were nuts or crazy. Oh, you're just, you're just insane. Just prior to our text, his family was seeking him because they feared he was out of his mind because of the way he was behaving. He was neglecting his own needs. He was being selfless. Nuts he must be. Demon possession was often associated with insanity because of the bizarre behavior exhibited by the demonized. William MacDonald says, It's always true that a man who is on fire for God seems deranged to his contemporaries. The more like Christ we are, the more we too will experience the sorrow of being misunderstood by relatives and friends. If we set out to make a fortune, men will cheer us. If we are fanatics for Jesus Christ, they will jeer us. In Matthew 10:25, Jesus says this, It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? You ever been accused of being demon-possessed or just crazy because you're in love with Jesus and talking about him? If you follow Jesus, expect to be treated like Jesus was treated. Don't be surprised if you are thought to be unbalanced, out of touch with reality, living in another world, totally impractical. J.R. Miller comments on this. He says they could account for his unconquerable zeal only by concluding that he was insane. We hear much of the same kind of talk in modern days when some devoted follower of Christ utterly forgets self in love for his master. People say he must be insane. They think every man is crazy whose religion kindles into any sort of unusual fervor or who grows more earnest than the average Christian and work for the master. That's a good sort of insanity. It is a sad pity that it is so rare. If there were more of it, there would not be so many unsaved souls dying under the very shadow of our churches. It would be a glorious thing if all Christians were beside themselves as the master was or as Paul was. It's a far worse insanity, which in this world never gives a thought to any other world, which moving continually among lost men never pities them, nor thinks of their lost condition, nor puts forth any effort to save them. It is easier to keep a cool head and a colder heart and to give ourselves no concern about perishing souls. But we are our brother's keepers, and no malfeasance in duty can be worse than that which pays no heed to their eternal salvation. 
But for these scribes and other Jewish leaders, the demon accusation was not intended as a metaphor for insane. They meant it quite literally and specifically. They had tried to discredit him as a Sabbath breaker and a tradition defiler. This was their latest attack upon his legitimacy. He's doing the work of the devil. Maybe he is the devil. There was another exchange which gives some insight into the situation. And we find this in John 8. Jesus speaking to the Jews who were disputing with him. He says in verse 42, Jesus says to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. He says, Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. This is the word diabolos, and it means slanderous or accusing falsely. It's primarily used of the devil, but also of those who slander others because they do the work of the devil in slandering. In Revelation chapter 12, uh, verses 9 through 12, we find this description of the devil. It says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, Diabolos, and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the slanderer. He accuses them before God day and night. And says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil, the obelisk, has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So going back to John 8, verse 44, Jesus is telling them, You are of your father the devil the slanderer, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. The devil is, he began the lying and he continues the lying. He says in verse 45, then, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, do, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Two insults in one. You know, the Samaritan was the half Jewish and half people who were imported into the land. And they... The, Many of the Jews probably considered them demon-possessed to begin with. <laughs> so don't we say rightly you're a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answers, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone here keeps my word, he shall never see death. And then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham's dead, the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. 
Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Why do you, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus is not shy about telling them at this point. Jesus answers, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It's my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? There's another sign of his insanity, no doubt. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. They knew that he was claiming to be the same God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. I am that I am. And to them, this was blasphemy, as we're reading here in Mark 3. And so they took up stones to, to kill him with stones. He couldn't be killed with stones. That, was, that wasn't going to work. He had to be crucified for prophecy to be fulfilled. So he was able to go out of the temple through the midst of them. So they again accused Jesus of being demonized or controlled by a demon. They knew that Jesus was not demonized. He had none of the attributes of those who were. And he brought deliverance to those possessed by demons. But they sought to discredit him in the eyes of the people. They had to try and accomplish this before they could destroy him. They were unable to deny that mighty works are being done. Everybody knew it. Everybody saw it. Everyone witnessed the miracles of healing and deliverance, so they had to assert that it was not the work of God, but the work of the devil. Jesus did not accuse them of being demon-possessed, but he correctly noted that their father was the devil. Those are two different things. There are two kinds of people in the world, children of God and children of the devil. And no one is born into the world as a child of God. We do the works of our father, the devil. Some horrendously so, and some more mildly. People are not basically good, but basically evil. They're fallen in sin. We're not literally born with the devil as our father. He's not our progenitor, but he is the first rebel against God, and we are born in sin. We're born rebels like him. He is the metaphorical father of fallen mankind. If we look in Mark 3.23... Jesus responds to this accusation that he's demonized, or Beelzebub. He calls them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Well, the entire world is in a spiritual war. We read about it in Revelation 12, where the devil in the tribulation period is cast down to the earth. Now, Jesus points out that in a war, you do not fight against your own side. There are times in human warfare where some are killed by their own side. They call it friendly fire. But this is not a military strategy. Rather, it is an error. Sometimes we read of fragging, where a soldier kills a commander whom he hates. 
his own commander. Again, this is not a strategy, but it's a rogue action punishable by death. No army bombs its own troops on purpose. The archers do not aim at their own advancing army. One of the great strategies, human and spiritual, is to divide and conquer, to weaken the enemy. Satan does not want to see people freed from demons. He wants to demonize people. That's what he's about. A.T. Robertson says, picture Satan plundering the demons, the very tools by which he carried on his business. This is, the, you know, when he says he plunders his goods, this is the word suke, goods or tools. These are the tools of Satan. He's not going to plunder his own tools. He's going to use his tools for his own purposes. Robertson said it's a reductio ad absurdum. That means, hey, that's stupid. I don't know Latin, but yeah. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided cannot stand. There's a famous speech given by Abraham Lincoln at the Illinois Republican Convention in which he quotes this statement, a house divided cannot stand. It's, you, know, you can see it on the Internet easily, and it's very interesting to read the whole thing. He has a lot of lawyery terminology in there, you know, legal terminology or speaking as a lawyer. So you might have to look up some words. This speech was in 1858, before his election as president and before the war between the states. In his context, he was speaking of a nation of which half held slavery to be valid and the other half advocating the abolishment of slavery. And in his speech, he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. So this is Lincoln looking to the future and say, and uh, this was, you know, around the time of the Dred Scott decision, and uh, slavery was being allowed, say, in Illinois. You know, if somebody moved there and they already had a slave, they could they could have a slave there. And so that he was seeing that this is either going to permeate the whole nation or slavery would be abolished. Now Lincoln advocated an abolishment of slavery, but he was not sure how things were going to go. He advocated a continued push for the abolishment, and at the end of his speech he says this, this result is not doubtful. He's talking about the slavery being outlawed. This result is not doubtful. We shall not fail if we stand firm. We shall not fail. Wise counsels may accelerate or mistakes delay it, but sooner or later the victory is sure to come. Lincoln, along with others in our history, is being canceled for not having done enough. What man in his day could have done enough? Our founding documents are being condemned and ignored, even portrayed as wicked. Yet within the founding principles of those documents were the seeds of the inevitable abolishment of slavery. Are we a perfect nation? No. No, you know, no nation with imperfect people will be a perfect nation. Are we messed up as a nation? Yeah, we are. But more for ignoring our founding documents and the wise counsel of our founders than for adhering to them. Within those documents also was a recognition of the fallen nature of man and thus safeguards against the accumulation of too much power by any one individual or any faction of government. 
Most of these safeguards are also being ignored or even denigrated. That's a public service announcement, not part of the scriptures we're studying. As we go back to our text, Jesus says you cannot plunder the strong man unless you first bind him. That is, you must be stronger than the strong man. Jesus is able to bind the strong man and plunder him, and he did. He's infinitely stronger than Satan. Satan is the strong man. The house is his dominion. He is the God of this age. His goods are the power or the people over whom he holds sway. Jesus is in the business of plundering Satan's house and rescuing those held captive by him. And we can also participate in that work. Jesus gives authority also to those who follow him, but we would do well to always keep Jesus between ourselves and the enemy, whether it's Satan or demons. We are exhorted to take up the full armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil and that uh, we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, as we read in Ephesians 6. Well, Mark chapter 3, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says this, Assuredly, I say to you that all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. When it says assuredly here in the New King James, it, it may be verily in the King James Version or truly. The word is actually amen. When it's used at the beginning of a statement, then it's assuredly or truly, verily. When it's used at the end, it is so be it, you know, agreement. Well, what we see here in these few verses is the how-to on how to never be forgiven by God. People love how-to things, right? So this is it, how to never be forgiven by God. This is it. If you want that, this is what you have to do. This is referred to as the unforgivable sin. Many Christians worry that they've committed this sin. At different times, brothers or sisters have come to me with this concern, but it is an entirely unfounded concern. This is, a sin, this is a sin that a believer cannot commit by definition. It's an, it is exclusively a sin committed by unbelievers. It is unbelief. If you're concerned that you may have committed this sin, this in itself means that you have not. Those who commit this sin are not worried about it. They're perfectly comfortable with their viewpoint. These scribes are not upset that they may have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. That was what Jesus was doing from their viewpoint. David Guzik says, The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, not because it is a sin too big for God to forgive, but because it is an attitude of the heart that cares nothing for God's forgiveness. It never has forgiveness because it never wants forgiveness God's way. You may, as a believer, be convicted by the Holy Spirit. You may be chastised by the Father if you refuse to correct your path. But if you're experiencing condemnation or if you're being accused of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that's not from God. God convicts of sin. God brings correction. The devil brings condemnation. If you feel condemned, run to Jesus. He's the one who protects and saves. 
If you have a desire to be forgiven by God, you have not committed the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin. Now, the blaspheme is to speak reproachfully of someone or to speak evil of them. Have you said a word against the Holy Spirit? Perhaps you have, even without realizing it. But you may have even done so knowledgeably. This is not what is being spoken of here by Jesus. The explanation is given to us in verse 30. He says this because they said, literally this is they kept saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is why he was warning them about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, because they were saying the Holy Spirit is an unclean spirit. They were saying he had a demon. Jesus was filled to all the fullness with the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to them here because they are ascribing the work of the Holy Spirit to a demon, calling the Holy Spirit an unclean spirit that needs to be cast out. Now, it's true. Some point out, you know, people can't commit this sin in the same way today. That's true. Jesus was there. He was doing the miracles. You know, in the exact same way, no, you can't do it, but you can uh, do it the same in principle. People who do this and continue in it are guilty of an everlasting sin. We see this done in a different way. In John chapter 7 and verse 12, when they were challenging him, it says there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he's good, and others said no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. These people were saying that the truth that Jesus spoke was actually a lie or a deception. This is another way of attributing uh, the works of the Holy Spirit to a demon, attributing the words of the Holy Spirit to lies. It's the same unbelief. Guzik again says these religious leaders were in danger of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because they looked at the perfectly good and wonderful work of God in Jesus and officially pronounced it the evil of Satan. They pointed to a settled rejection, or this pointed to a settled rejection of heart against Jesus, possible evidence of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Stedman says, notice that these men had not yet committed the unpardonable sin. Otherwise, Jesus never would have warned them about it. By his own words, there is no use warning a man who has committed an unpardonable sin. He's beyond help. So the unforgivable sin that is refusing to acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit as being from God, that is rejecting, refusing the forgiveness that Jesus brings to the sinner. If you, if you reject the forgiveness of God for yourself, you can't be forgiven. Why is this unforgivable? Why does this result in eternal condemnation? Why is it impossible for one committing this sin to be saved? Because it is the work of the Holy Spirit that effectuates salvation. If someone refuses to believe the testimony of the Spirit, they are in danger of being lost for eternity. Henry Morris says, It is unequivocally clear that the one unforgivable sin is permanently rejecting Christ. This is the way this, this would be committed in our day. Thus, speaking against the Holy Spirit is equivalent to rejecting Christ with such finality that no future repentance is possible. We see this spoken of by Jesus in John 3.18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's the condemnation, refusal to believe. 
Verse 36 of chapter 3, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, Jesus never says that this sin cannot be repented of in this life. The very reason he says this to the scribes is as a warning of their danger of eternal condemnation. They could turn, they could turn and believe the work and testimony of the Spirit and be saved, and some of them may have at a later time. Um, we'll see, you know, later. Mark, there's a, a scribe who comes to Jesus and they're talking, and Jesus says, "Wow, you're not far from the kingdom of God." You know, so there was a chance for these guys to repent, just as there are for other men. But uh, some of them were in at least in danger of coming to that point of not being able to accept the testimony of the Spirit. They're in a place of danger that is eternal. But this sin cannot be final or certain, at least to our knowledge, to the knowledge of God it may be. But it can't be final or certain to our knowledge until a person has rejected the work of the Holy Spirit unto death. There's a warning for everyone today who hears the gospel and refuses the forgiveness of sin that is offered. Uh, you know, we note Jesus said all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. There's not a sin that should keep someone from coming to Jesus Christ and receiving his forgiveness and his cleansing from sin. Being made a child of God by the work of the Holy Spirit, regenerating him. If a person denies the saving work of the Holy Spirit until they die, they will be unable to be saved. The Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity who regenerates the one who has faith in the Lord Christ Jesus. In John chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, Jesus answers and says to them, or Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. It is the Spirit who brings new birth. And so to reject the work of the Spirit is to reject that work. Titus Chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 says, When the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is how to never be forgiven by God. But this also tells us how to be eternally forgiven by God. It's a different how-to. It's a better how-to. It's as simple as responding to the work of the Holy Spirit, accepting his testimony about Jesus. You know, if you're not a believer, the Holy Spirit is with you. He's calling you. He's drawing you to come to Jesus so that your sins may be forgiven. It's as simple as accepting what the Bible has to say about who Jesus is, he's the Lord, and what he has done, dying for our sins and being raised from the dead for our salvation.